Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with renowned writer and social critic, James Howard Kunstler. His global recognition is grounded in his unapologetic scrutiny of modern American society, particularly within the realms of urban planning, architecture, energy, and sustainability. He's a steadfast critic of suburban sprawl and unchecked urban expansion, presenting an alternative vision for the future, a vision that hinges on a return to local communities through the revitalization of small towns and cities. Through his work, Kunstler underlines the urgency of confronting critical issues like peak oil and climate change, urging society to brace itself for a post-fossil fuel era. Having authored more than a dozen books, Kunstler has an international following for his ideas, which he shares weekly on his blog and on his own podcast. Given his expertise, this conversation promises to be a thought-provoking exploration on the structure of contemporary society and the future of our cities. Jim, welcome to On Cities. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. The pleasure is mine, Carrie. Jim, I'd love to know where you grew up and how you think these formative years may have shaped your thinking about the world. Well, I had a kind of uh, interesting experience because I, I was born in New York City uh, and lived there uh, f- until I was five years old, moved out to the Long Island suburbs uh, and lived there for three years until my parents got divorced and I moved back to Manhattan with my mom and spent my truly formative years in Manhattan, you know, the center of New York City. But I also had experience as a child going to summer camp in New Hampshire and spending time, especially after I was about 13 years old, in small town America. They used to take us into town on Thursday nights, and we had the choice of going when we were, you know, young teenagers, and we had the choice of going to the street dance in the town square or going to the movies, you know, for the for the socially inept. Uh, and I had a third thing that. So I where were do. you? Were you at the movies or at the street? Well, I, I did Party. both, but I had a third. <laughs> I had a third option, which was I loved just wandering around this small town. Because it was so unlike the place that I lived, New York City, with its exorbitant activity and overwhelming scale. And, you know, everything about it was different from where I spent most of my year. So so I had those three experiences, the suburbs, the biggest city in America and, uh, you know, typical Main Street, small town America. And I got a good uh, I was able to come to some some early conclusions about the. Uh, condition of life in all three of those um, milieu. And so we're going to talk a lot about that um, in this conversation, obviously with your work. Uh, but I was just curious, um, out of the three, was it immediately obvious to you, which was your preferred place to be? Or would you say that they were all equally appealing to you at the time? Um, well, uh, they were. Uh, many of them were fraught, actually. My My you know, growing up in Manhattan was very peculiar. Uh, people are under the impression that uh, uh, you have some intimate relationship with all the people that you live uh, cheek by jowl with. And it's just not true. I grew up in a, you know, a 17 story pre-war, as they're called, uh, apartment building, a very large building uh, with a lot of apartments in it. And, you know, we never saw the people who lived next door. They could have been Martians. You know, uh, 
On the other hand, I lived in suburbia at exactly the time, the optimum time for a child to be in suburbia between the age of five and eight. When you do not have ne any need to integrate with the adult world. You know, you're, you don't really need to go shopping. I, although I did, I mean, I went to the, you know, the candy store and I, I used to get Cokes at the gas station uh, on my way to the school that I walked to or the on my way home. Because we walked to school, you know, there were no fleets of yellow school buses back in the, that time, 1954. It's pretty early. Um, so, uh, suburbia for me was, uh, pretty wonderful as a five, six year old child. And it was very trauma traumatizing to be taken into New York city. But once I was in New York city and my mom was working and I was on my own, you know, I, I lived in a remarkably independent life for a child of eight. You know, I would go into Chinese restaurants by myself and order. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite activity was was a hanging out in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. And, uh, you know, if, any, if, if anybody came around and asked me what I was doing, I would pretend to speak in a foreign accent and not understand them. You know, I, I like kind of messing around with people that way. And in the city, you could do that. But I was a very solitary teenager because the school I went to was so far away from where I lived. It might as well have been in Czechoslovakia. It took so long to get there every day. And um, so, mo you know, most of my teenage years were spent going to museums by myself. Uh, or, you know, what I used to do on uh, uh, weekends was I would walk down Madison Avenue or Park Avenue or Lexington and find some... Uh, group of teenagers going somewhere and i'd follow them into a building and go to the party that they were going to hmm. so you know uh that's what you do when you're a solitary teenager a very peculiar way of life then finally i went to college i went to a fourth rate suny college because i was a terrible high school student and um but it was fortuitously located in a very small town so far away from new york city in New York State that it might as well have been in the Midwest. And um, I love that little Main Street town. And I had a great time there for four years. And uh, so, you know, I experienced these various conditions of American life, and they were all weird in in, in their own way and, and good and bad in their own way. But but I, I think New York City w was actually kind of a punishing environment. Hmm. Well, when all actually said and done. I think um, in preparing for this conversation, I learned that you recently completed an autobiography about your adolescence, you know, which you started to touch upon right now, entitled Young Man Blues, because beyond all of the texts that you've written about architecture yeah. and urban design, you've also written numerous novels. Um, and this one is entitled Young Man Blues. So I was just curious if you could briefly share what compelled you to write this book uh, about this particular period in your life and maybe what surfaced from those reflections. Well, the subtitle was Notes on a Nervous Adolescence. And, uh, you know, I've just described a little bit about, about my adolescent years, but um, um, I developed real anxiety problems as a teenager in New York City. And I uh, part of it was, uh, you know, I, I, I often felt that I was in a kind of German expressionist movie like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where everything was kind of askew and I was overwhelmed by the, the, the size and scale of the, of the buildings around me and the people, uh, the people around me in New York city looked like characters out of a George Tooker painting. I don't know if you're familiar with, he's a rather obscure mid 20th century American painter who painted all these hollow eyed people in the subways and, and, you know, really spooky. And, because I was an art student, I went to a special high school called the High School of Music and Art, and I was kind of uh, immersed in art and art history as a teenager. So, you know, a lot of a lot of things like German Expressionism and and min Middle American American Realism, and uh, you know, th they played a role in my imagination, and they kind of overtook it. I became very anxious and and uh, had real problems with that. So. I wrote Young Man Blues in a way to help some of the young men of the, the generations that are coming up now who are having probably, I would guess, or I've observed even a harder time growing up than I did because, uh, you know, I was living at least 
in a society that was still relatively stable economically in the 1960s. And they are now entering a world that is fantastically unstable and full of of uh, pitfalls, problems, obstacles, obstructions, and impediments to happy, happiness. So that's why I wrote Young Man Blues. I hope they get something out of it. Yeah. Well, I'm the mother of a 17-year-old who's <laughs> squarely an adolescent, so I'm curious. I, I will be reading the book um, myself. Um, thank you for sharing um, those insights into your early years. It does give me a perspective about maybe the kinds of things that you've spent um, the better part of your professional career talking about. And so let's dive into it if we if we can. Um, yeah. You've been a longstanding critic of suburban sprawl and an advocate for compact, walkable cities. Uh, as this show is dedicated to the design of our cities, I was curious, what would you say are the fundamental characteristics of a great city or town? Um, uh, well, I think scale is an important one. They, I think it's it's really crucial to live in a place that is scaled properly to human neurology. And I don't want to get too, you know, scientifically wonky about it, but I think many of the problems that we suffer from in suburbia, uh, especially, come from the fact that uh, the template of, of that design is at war with human neurology. It's presenting all kinds of uh, uh, punishments to our system that we perceive, uh, and probably uh, mostly per they're perceived at a level just below our consciousness. But when we're constantly you know, surrounded by very large, heavy objects hurtling past us, namely automobiles, trucks, buses, you know, that's disturbing. But the vast distances between places and the, you know, the poor connections between places and uh, the, the in, intense lack of artistry in our surroundings. And by artistry, I mean uh, the efforts that human beings have made over the millennia that we've been civilized uh, to present some idea that it's important for us to be here, that the universe possibly cares about us, and that we certainly care about each other. And those uh, sentiments are signified in architecture by the grace notes that we apply to our surroundings. So you talk about what a city, you know, a city that I think is a wonderful city. I think my favorite probably is Paris although there are many, many other comparable places around the world and around Europe and South America and many other places. But one of the things that you notice about being in Paris on a minute-by-minute -minute basis uh, is that you're surrounded by this large and small grace notes in everything around you, um, down to the handwriting on the chalkboard in front of the restaurant. You know, from from that tiny scale down to the gigantic scale of the monumental building like the Paris Opera, you know, which is full of signifying elements of uh, uh, beautiful ornamentation that tell you that you're in a place that wants to honor the human presence. So there, there's that issue. Then there's the issue of connectivity. And, uh, you know, what you see in a place like Paris <clears throat> is that the, uh, you know, when you're making a journey from point A to point B in Paris, it's uh, noticeably very pleasurable because there's there's always something to catch your eye at the ground level and at the human scale. You know, something in some little shop front or, you know, an um, uh, a battery of almond croissants in the store window uh, or some, you know, just the beautiful blue color of a storefront or a door uh, or a brass door knocker or, you know, at that level, the, the artistry is uh, clear and apparent, but also, you know, you're connected to the transactions of daily life, the commerce, you know, the being able to get things that you need and to meet the people that you need to meet. Um, and then there's the question of the public spaces. You know, the public spaces in a place like Paris are superbly designed in ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, 
are um, amazingly lacking in the USA. For existence, for for example, in our our park design. You know, we in in you go to Paris and and the order of na nature is very ordered in the center of Paris. You know, the trees are lined up in. Uh, uh, like L.A.'s in L.A.'s. Yeah, excuse me. I forgot that. Book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the trees are lined up in L.A.'s. You know, the park benches are disposed in a, in a very formal way. And that gives you the idea that the that, you know, even in the place where nature is in the city, there is still a tremendous amount of order and a human order. And I think it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, those places in European cities are orderly and our places are are, are kind of like a wild wild a, a wilderness and why terrible things sometimes happen in American parks, you know, because we have these uh, arbitrary plantings of trees and uh, barriers that people can hide behind, you know, shrubs and the understory and, you know, all of these things that are supposed to be decorative. Anyway, uh, Paris is my idea of a, of a well-designed city. And there are, you know, there are dozens of places as good in, in France and, and in other parts of Europe. Well, it's um. I, you, so you've already answered the last question. I typically ask my guests at the end, what is their favorite city and why? And certainly you're speaking about the historic city because, um, you know, you can, the, the outskirts of the European city, which is essentially also sprawl, um, can sometimes seem far worse than the American, um, perhaps because it's contrasted by the kind of urban environment that you were just describing, yeah, which is, true. which is beautifully scaled, um, also offers connections. And then I think to your last point has a rich public realm uh, that orders, you know, the collective life of the city. Um, but I think, we can continue to talk about this, but I, I would feel that in in addition to your longstanding critique, let's say, um, of these suburban environments that go against what you were just describing, you've also argued against the unbridled growth of large city centers, such as your own uh, hometown, New York, or places like Chicago. Um, and you state that these cities have exceeded the scales of operations for which they're designed and that they're no longer sustainable. And this seems to go a little bit against the argument made by many, let's say, urbanists that advocate for the metropolis. So can you tell us what brings you to this way of thinking? Yeah, well, uh, I wrote a book called The Long Emergency, which is about uh, a major uh, civilizational discontinuity that we are facing. And uh, it's you know it's it's largely going to be a uh, social and economic discontinuity, and what it really means is that uh, the context that these cities grew into what they are now is not going to be there for them anymore, especially the economic context. And uh, you know we're we're moving into a period of uh, energy and capital scarcities and uh, battles over the remaining capital and energy resources and and um uh, you know the one of the implications is is that we're facing a comprehensive period of contraction of economic contraction and it'll also be uh, a kind of social and uh, cultural contraction we're going to lose a lot of knowledge that we've acquired uh, just as the romans did and um you know what we take for being normal now as a giant metroplex city in america whether it's new york or houston or or los angeles is really not gonna you know it's not within the normal disposition of things in the human uh project and uh i i have kind of a general uh law of uh of history which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time and doing what we did in the 20th century seemed like a good idea at the time, you know, building a skyscraper cities. And by the way, which you believe are actually now obsolete, right? You believe the yeah. skyscraper is going to be an obsolete building form. Yeah. So, you know, we do what seems like a good idea at the time and then times change and it's not such a good idea anymore. So we filled Manhattan with skyscrapers, you know, with with 60, 80, 90 story buildings and uh, all of a sudden we're in a situation where these skyscrapers are now running at uh, 30 percent occupancy 
and they're they are giant you know real estate projects that are mortgaged you know they have to pay a mortgage they, they had to borrow money to build them and develop them and now they can't pay their mortgages and and they can't pay for their maintenance and they can't pay their taxes and uh they're not going to work the business model for the skyscraper is broken so uh, can i ask you something jim um since you're talking about the broken model as you see it um, there's a lot of people that argue and it seems like a rationalist or a rational argument that these buildings could be retrofitted there's a desperate need for housing let's say across america so there are people who make the argument that these empty office towers can now be retrofitted with housing um forget but I, about it okay okay can you tell me why forget um, about it can you well, tell first me? of all you got to understand that the high-rise apartment building is only an accessory to the office tower. If you don't have those people inhabiting the office towers, you're not going to have that kind of population uh, who's going to be able to afford to rent uh, those apartments or buy those apartments. And 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 by the way, the whole condo model of uh, developing and, and inhabiting skyscrapers is uh, going to prove to be a very short-lived phenomenon. You know, it, it started basically in New York in the 1970s, big time, and uh, it's it's going to be ending now. But um, uh, you know, you there there are physical problems that I'm sure that you're aware of. You know, in an office building, the plumbing stacks you know are very limited uh, because they only have one or two bath. They only have like two bathrooms on every floor for the offices etc etc it's good, incredibly costly and we're entering this period of capital scarcity i'll tell you one thing i saw a preview of coming attractions in johannesburg mm, about 12 years ago when i went there and after apartheid ended in south africa all the corporations in downtown jo johannesburg moved to the northern suburbs into these fortified office parks and they abandoned downtown Johannesburg, which was about the size of, let's say, Denver, you know, about 10 blocks of skyscrapers. And all those skyscrapers became squats. They were inhabited by poor squatters. And, you know, very shortly, the electricity stopped um, going into them and uh, the elevators stopped running and the water stopped running. So people are basically camping out in these giant structures. And um, I think we're more likely to see that outcome than we are to see any kind of comprehensive renovation of skyscrapers. Hmm. Um, so, because your argument is that they are um, at scales, let's say like the ones you mentioned, they're so large, they require a kind of infrastructural investment to just keep them running. Um, that given, let's say, what you're arguing is economic uncertainty is unlikely. And then to try to retrofit them for housing, to your point, there's so much infrastructure that needs to be done to be able That's to right. do that, that it's not likely. Is that, yeah. is that, am I understanding that? Yeah, because in Johannesburg, what you saw was, you know, they didn't change any of the floor plates in the buildings. Um, uh, they didn't turn them into apartments. They just had a bunch of people squatting in, a, in offices, basically, you know. So given, given this argument, which is also, I think, central to your work, you believe that these large cities are going to experience contraction. Yeah. And that- yeah global urban populations are going to shift once again. Yeah. I was I was wondering if you could cite um maybe one or two examples in history where where um let's say societies had contraction as a way to then later prosper because it sort of goes against the argument of prosperity, right? That you contract, but the argument is that we're going to contract the urban populations are going to kind of resettle so i'm curious um can you cite an example in history where this has happened sure. and then and then right now where do you think people will will migrate well uh, the obvious example is ancient rome which went from being a metropolis of a million people in the time of hadrian to a you know a backwater of about 11,000 people during the uh, early medieval period right with sheep grazing in the uh old forum until as late as the 18th century you know when when the early uh european painters started to go over there and and paint the ruins of uh of ancient rome and uh as our friend and colleague elizabeth platter zyberg has said more than once cities are where they are because they they occupy important geographical sites so something is going to be in these places, 
You know, uh, Detroit is on a very strategic river between two great lakes. There's a reason for it being there. Uh, New York City has the best harbor on the east coast of North America. Uh, and it's connected by, uh, you know, to by a, a river and several uh, canals to the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River. So it's terribly important. But can it uh, sustain at the level that it's at now? No, the answer is it's already begun. It's it's painful contraction. And you can already see uh, how much strange behavior spins off of that contraction, you know, in terms of just bad social behavior and, you know, ethnic battles over over who gets to occupy the best neighborhoods and who gets to to have the, the stuff. And um, this is far from settled. It's going to continue for decades. And New York City is going to be a much smaller place than it was before. Um, I think as a general proposition, the population of Western civilization is going to be lower than it was before. And uh, I don't know if we want to get into that, you know, much more deeply. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. And um, I, I think actually. I think we. I would like to delve a little bit um, deeper into that. And since we're coming to the middle of the episode, though, um, I'd like to take a quick break. Um, and when we return, I'm going to continue my conversation with James Howard Kunzler. We're going to continue to talk about the kind of redistribution of population in America and the contraction of our larger cities as we move out towards um, smaller cities and towns. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with writer and social critic James Howard Kunzler. Just prior to the break, we were talking about the potential contraction of our um, metropolitan cities and the redistribution of urban populations in America. Um, so, uh, Jim, 
why, uh, again, maybe if you could follow up, why do you believe that um, these cities are going to contract? I think you were mentioning that earlier. And more importantly, where do you feel that the populations will shift in America? Where will people be migrating? Well, I think it's clear that we're entering a period that's going to be kind of disorderly and uh, confounding for uh, for society and for politics. Uh, There's already quite a churning demographic migration going around in our within the United States. This is apart from, you know, strangers entering the United States. But, you know, people are leaving California, they're moving to Florida and Texas, and uh, they're leaving big cities, and they're they're moving to small towns in the country. Right now, I think there's just a certain confusion about what's really happening. The only thing that really registers on people is that they're in some kind of distress where they are. And, you know, for them to draw a, a larger picture about it, I think may be difficult. But if you add up the the aggregate of these disturbances and 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 this distress uh what it'll eventually amount to is an understanding that the action has changed the action is shifting from the concentration of large populations in giant metroplex megacities to places that are smaller in scale for for all of the activities the economic activities of uh daily life, including especially food production. Uh, We are going to be encountering problems with uh, feeding our populations, you know, which we've accomplished for about the last 50 years through heroic, uh, you know, scientifically uh, uh, juiced uh, uh, ways of producing grains. And that's, you know, th- that miracle is going to be coming to an end with the end of agribusiness as it's currently arranged. And we're, people are going to have to probably move to places that have a more, uh, that have a meaningful relationship with agriculture. So and- one, one of the things that that implies is there are places in the United States where that's not true. So places like Phoenix and Tucson, you know, they're going to become very problematical. Las Vegas, uh, they're not sustainable. Uh, I, I think that Las Vegas is going to be, uh, you know, left to the tarantulas and the Gila monsters uh, within a few decades. And all those incredible monuments out there are going to be like our, the, our American pyramids for 2000 years from now. Um, but I think that the small town is especially important because uh towns cities urban areas are are absolutely crucial to the project of civilization you know because that's where uh most of the activities of civilized life are are organized engineered maintained regulated and um uh we have a lot of small towns in america which are probably the most disinvested places in our country uh, they've been the most neglected. They've been left behind, but they too occupy important sites. You know, all these places on this fantastic inland waterway system that we have: the Mississippi, Ohio, Missouri River, the Great Lakes, the canals that co- connect the the Hudson River to the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River. Very important. Uh, and our, you know, our these systems that we depend on for daily life are deeply interconnected and uh, they're all beginning to wobble now. And you can see how clearly how uh, when when you start having problems with the energy industry and then you'll have problems with the trucking industry and if the trucking industry isn't working, we're not going to be able to move food around the country the way we're used to doing it now. You know, so everything arrives just in time on schedule. Uh, we're, we're probably getting to a place where water transportation is going to be much more important again. Unfortunately, we haven't paid any attention to the railroad system, which which could have saved us a lot of grief if we if we had gone gotten on it sooner. You know, we have a railroad system out there that was the envy of the world in the 1920s, and now it's sitting out there rusting in the rain. 
and we're beyond the point where we can uh, hope to create high-speed rail the way they did in other countries, because uh, we're now entering this period of capital scarcity rather than, you know, capital plenty. And uh, so that is liable to be uh, uh, an enormous problem. The eastern United States, at least, is full of small towns that are waiting to be reactivated and re-inhabited and probably will be. So we how just do you don't imagine yet. how do you imagine that would happen? I mean, people would migrate there, but um, but that would take a kind of entire shift in society. So when you're talking about uh, these changes, obviously, you're talking about I think earlier you said decades, correct? I mean, because I guess you're pointing to areas, let's say attached to inland waterways, because you are saying that these are um, easily, like, let's say navigable or connected, right? Mm-hmm. Is is that one of yeah. the reasons? And also they're, they're relatively close to uh, large areas that can be um, used for agriculture. Would that be a second reason that you you're- You bet. Um, and then presumably, uh, they would eventually, if if people began to migrate there, they would then generate uh, economies because obviously people need to work. And so oftentimes people leave the small cities today because they don't offer enough economic uh, advantage or opportunity. But you, you would see that that would shift again because of the more primary needs for, let's say, food and water. Yeah, I think that's true. And right now, I think that a lot of Americans are simply confounded. They they don't really think they they don't really feel there's anywhere to go that's okay. Uh, a lot of people probably apprehend that to some degree suburbia is toast. That you know it was it seemed like a good idea at the time, and we invested far too much of our national treasure in building all of this suburban infrastructure, and it's going to fail because the mass motoring is in the process right now of failing. We can see it failing. We have all these fantasies about replacing the gasoline-powered car with electric cars, but that's not going to happen. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, we could go on for a half an hour about why that's not true, but just let's, for the moment, take it, take it as given. It's not going to happen. We're not going to electrify the vehicle fleet. What's going to happen instead is we're not going to have mass motoring anymore. And if we don't have mass motoring, it's got to be a democratic mass phenomenon or it's not going to it can't just be for wealthy people. And that's what we're getting to now. So, um, I mean, I've and by heard... the way, by the way, the whole mass motoring system is failing uh, not on the basis of what people expected, which is how you power the car. It's not failing on that basis. It's failing on the financial basis because the middle class is getting so uh, roughed up that they th- there are fewer and fewer people every year who can even qualify for loans to buy cars the way Americans are used to buying cars on, a, on loans. And... Um, you know, the car companies have gone to heroic lengths to devise uh, extraordinary loans to to move the merchandise off the lot. But, you know, you got an eight year loan for a used car and the collateral for that loan, uh, the value of it goes to zero within the first four years of the loan. And, you know, we that has that's not sustainable. So, uh, you know, and, and General Motors cannot stay in business if it, you know, General Motors sells more than a million units a year, okay? They can't stay in business if they're only selling 130,000 units a year. We're not going to have giant car companies anymore. And if you don't have giant companies, I don't think you're going to have boutique car companies. So forget about mass motoring, you know, we're within, you know, 10 or 20 years of saying goodbye to that. And when we do, we're going to say goodbye to suburbia. And I think a lot of people kind of apprehend that. And I would go even further to say that a lot of the uh, psychological stress that people are under in now in America and a lot of the angst and anxiety that's being generated comes from, you know, a, a pers- you know, maybe kind of subconsciously or semi-consciously perceived apprehension that our whole way of life is insane. And that it's not going to continue the way it has. And that means we're going to be looking for other things to do, but we probably won't do it until we have to do it. We're going to be impelled to do it. You know, 
re reality has mandates of its own, but they sometimes don't get traction until people are really ready to hear it. And then they become self-evident and then we have to act. And what we're going to see is people will apprehend that the way that life is arranged on the landscape in North America is not working anymore and we got to make new arrangements and they'll be compelled to do it on their own and the, a, a new consensus will form about what's possible and what's plausible and what's realistic and people will follow those mandates well it all sounds pretty bleak jim but well, it's, it but is it's difficult I, it's difficult but it's not I the mean, end of the there, world there's yeah, I mean, I think there's a, and certainly maybe outside of the scope of this interview, but there are um, a lot of uh, people who discuss, you know, that we we do live in a in an abundant era, perhaps one of the most abundant eras on the planet. But I want to continue down your the premise of your post fossil fuel era, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is what we're discussing, and I think perhaps what I'm hearing in your answer, and maybe this is one way of thinking about it is that I don't know, for example, if suburbia will disappear. I mean, even the term, let's say, comes from the ancient uh, word, isn't it? Suburra or ancient Roman word sure. um, to be outside of the city. But I think what you're arguing is that it needs to be transformed, right? It cannot be a kind of single use, homogenous uh, place where it's not the, be retrofitted. The, the only way that it can function is um, through, through the car. But I guess I want to point to some of the examples that you mentioned in your latest book, which is, uh, again, the long emergency, surviving the converging catastrophe. So it's really this kind of second, right? It's not the original long emergency, but here you're talking about individuals and communities that are adapting to the potential threat of a post-fossil fuel era, which is you're describing. So I'm wondering, being a a practicing architect. I'm always like interested in, you know, the analysis, but I'm also interested in, okay, how are people uh responding to this uh this kind of future that you're that you're proposing? So, what are some of these examples that you can share with us from the book where people are uh, attempting to adapt to this what you describe as a post-fossil fuel era? Well, mostly what you see in that particular realm of society right now you know it's kind of a fringe fringe realm of society is homesteaders you know people who are now leaving uh you know the, the the life of the city or an urban life of some sort along with an urban vocation you know and moving to the countryside and you know getting chickens and and uh planting gardens and you know i i am actually part of that movement because i did that myself um I was living in uh, uh, a small town in upstate New York, and I moved to a smaller town, to the edge of a smaller town. I can walk into town. Luckily, I was I found a a pretty uh, uh, I was lucky to find a good property that allowed me to do those things. But that's not really going to be the main template for most people, you know. Um, could, we're going to need to reintegrate all kinds of economic activities and roles for people. And it's one of one of the reasons that uh, I think young people are in such a state of anxiety is that they see that there are no roles for them in contemporary American life, you know, except roles that they don't want, like, uh, you know, racking up a half a million dollars in college debt uh, in order to become a, become an ophthalmologist or, uh, you know, working at Old Navy uh, or, you know, something like that. They don't they don't want that. But what we're going to see is all kinds of occupational niches that have to be filled in order to rebuild complex networks of economic opportunity. And it's not going to be the kind of e economic opportunity that, uh, uh, you know, that you read about in the pamphlets issue issued by the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we have to rebuild commercial networks of uh, production and distribution and and it's probably not going to happen at the scale that we've been doing it at for example making stuff you know the the detroit of 1955 is not coming back and however we're going to make stuff is going to be at a smaller scale but we're going to have to make some kind of stuff you know some kind of products we're going to have to create some kind of value if we're going to remain civilized and 
my guess is that a lot of it's going to be based on water power. And a lot of that water power is going to be based on, you know, the kind of uh, moving water rivers that you find east of the Mississippi. So these are exactly the kind of places that developed in the first place in America. And it wasn't that long ago. The town that I live in, which is basically in New England, was only settled in the 1850s, actually, that that late in the game. And it's on a tributary of the Hudson River, which happens to have, you know, 10 or 20 sites where the water falls 10 feet down and you can establish a factory of some kind. And so you see a whole sequence of development there where, you know, the production of goods went from using the water power itself to turn wheels or, you know, to create uh, energy to make stuff to being turned into hydroelectric sites. And then there are dozens of these hydroelectric sites uh, on this river that are now decommissioned, taken out of service. They're ruins, actually. And um, we're probably going to have to, you know, rediscover that they have value and use them again to either create either create local electricity or make things from the water power itself. And the whole electric, the whole uh, hydroelectric uh, issue is complicated by the fact that we need a lot of uh, materials that are hard to get, like copper wire. You need copper wire to make turbines. You know, how are we going to get copper wire in a global economy that is falling apart, in which ore and goods and and uh, raw materials are not moving the way they used to? And we don't have any factories left in the United States that produce these things. So this is a huge rebuilding project, and it's going to have to be a a rebuilding project that goes to a different scale of human life than what we've experienced. Well, the rebuilding also suggests new opportunities. And I think there is, like when you think about millennials, they're much more um, apt to uh, kind of move around. I think they think differently about work. Uh, So, I I mean, I think ultimately it's about what you argue for is a reorganization of society, which sometimes can be difficult to wrap one's head around because a a lot of the conversation tends to be um, someone let's say bleak. <laughs> um, but I do think that again, to underscore it's a, in, in your view, it's about a reshifting of society where you're moving from one place to another. And in that movement, there is new opportunities. There are new ways to reconstruct. Um, but I'm curious about two things. You said that, um, Ret- uh, suburbia won't be retrofitted, which no. which surprises me because there is so much land. You know, for example, let's just you know look at any suburban city, right? That at the center is let's say a giant mall, right? You already have the residential, you already have the infrastructure. Some of it can be close to train, depending upon where you are. Um, so why not just take these vast areas of underdeveloped like parking lots and develop, let's say, more of a commercial mixed use environment that would make those areas, let's say, more walkable, more connected, maybe even transform those terrible parking lots into more viable public spaces like the ones that you were describing earlier in the development of cities like Paris, let's say. So why, why, why well, wouldn't that, would that, be an, why, that would be why an why idealistic uh, outcome? But, but what would make it idealistic? I mean, because so much of it is already there. We already have What makes it idealistic where, is the yeah. assumptions that you're bringing to the project. Yeah, and and the main assumption is going to be that you have exactly the same kind of capital and the same kind of resources that you now have. And you're not going to have that. You're not the capital is not going to be there by capital. I mean, money that you can invest. I mean, I mean, surplus wealth that you can turn into something else. That's not going to be that we're blowing through our surplus wealth. So uh, the suburbs really have three destinies right now. Uh, one slums, two, salvage for material, and three, ruins. That's it. That's where Mm -hmm. that stuff is going. I I know we wish that we could turn all these places into new urbanist paradises, but it's not going to work out that way. And I want to remind you of something else that's very, very important, that societies are, are organisms uh, which and cities, which are the manifestation of the physical manifestation of societies, are organisms which self-organize emergently, so that 
you know, any kind of destiny for suburbia or the big cities or the small towns or anything else we're talking about are not the, their destiny is not going to be governed from the top down. There are not going to be any the grand plans that we're making probably are not going to apply. They by emergence, I mean that circumstances instruct you about what is happening in reality and and societies respond to that you know the best way they can and and that's how societies rebuild sometimes they they have to go through a long time out from activity and that's exactly what happened in europe after the fall of the roman empire they went through a long time out where very little happened and then eventually, you know, they got some traction and they started rebuilding. And uh, and here we are now, you know, 400 years after the Renaissance and uh, we're in modernity. But modernity is going through its own crisis now. And modernity is probably going to be going through something like a very uh, disturbing timeout from progress that will be uh, you could call it a discontinuity. I've already called it that. And, uh, you know, it, it's distressing to think about it, but it's probably where things are going. And or, perhaps it, or perhaps it's a new model of prosperity that isn't intimately connected with growth. But that's perhaps, exactly right. That's but, exactly right. Because what people may they make this big mistake of thinking that the only activity that the human race can can uh, understand is growth. But act, there are plenty of things that just represent activity that that are good enough for a human society without having to grow at the rates in the ways that we have, because the ways we've been doing it have been yeah. kind of suicidal. Well, and that ought to be self-evident. Jim, we're coming to the end of the episode. Anybody who would want to um, learn more about that, there's a very interesting new book by Tim Jackson um, entitled Prosperity and, uh, Without Growth, and he's an econ economist. So um, I think it's it, it feels a little counterintuitive, but I think it goes in line with what you're saying. So always provocative. Um, I think that um, the world that you lay out um, can feel a little bit overwhelming, though, Jim. And um, being a, a practitioner, I'm always thinking about solutions. So I I believe that with the contraction will come new growth if indeed that occurs. And I want to thank you for um, taking time out from your busy schedule to come and speak with us today. Next week, I'm going to be talking to photographer Stefan Gottlicker on his stunning images of South Florida's natural and urban landscapes. Uh, don't miss the conversation. If you enjoyed what you heard, tune in again every Friday on the On Cities podcast. Uh, Jim, thanks again. Always a lot to think about. A pleasure to be here on Modern Radio. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 